Good morning, church. I, like Chancellor, am excited for our Rooted Celebration dinner. However, I will be eating Stonefire Grill, not Firestone. So go to Firestone to get your oil changed, come to Rooted Celebration dinner, and enjoy Stonefire Grill. For those my, of you that were concerned... My bad, my bad. For those that were concerned about what is on the plate that night. So, hey, check it out, church. As we get ready to uh, get into now a serious time of God's Word, my prayer for us this morning is that uh, we would seek out what Jesus asks for us in John 17, 17. My prayer is that we would be sanctified today by the truth. And we believe and we affirm that the truth is God's Word. And so our prayer as we gather and worship, as we turn our attention to the Scriptures, is that they're going to shape us. They're going to sanctify us. They're going to make us holy. They're going to make us righteous. And so as we jump into that this morning, as we set our heart's attention on that, would you go with me to Exodus chapter 32? And while you're turning there, maybe you can remember when you were younger. Uh, maybe that was a while ago, and maybe not so long ago. But when you're a kid, every kid is trying to figure out and is always asked the question of, what are you going to be when you grow up? Right? And so as you get older, maybe the answer that you gave when you were five or six, maybe life quickly points out to you that that is not your calling in life, and you go a different direction. So for, for me and Taylor, we're realizing... Uh, that for one of our hypochondriac sons, he does not have a future in the medical profession. And so we discovered this when it was last year, after probably the thousandth time of watching Frozen, our hypochondriac son comes into the room and he comes to Taylor and I, seriously concerned. And he comes to us and he says, Mom, Dad, I've got kidney stones. Now, here's the thing. So many questions start going through my mind. How does my six-year-old know what a kidney stone is? And how did he arrive at such a self-diagnosis? So it turns out in the movie Frozen, there is one little line in a song where those annoying little rock trolls are singing, and one of them holds up a stone and says, I passed a kidney stone, right? And so now my hypochondriac son does a full-body MRI on himself, and he discovers that he has, church, not one, but two kidney stones. So there's good news, bad news. Good news is my six-year-old does not have kidney stones. Bad news is I was invited into a very uncomfortable anatomical conversation with my six-year-old about what is a kidney stone and what's not a kidney stone. And so we just realized that maybe he doesn't have a future He's in, in the medical field, right? And so, because you want a doctor who's not going to mix things up. You're going to want a doctor that, that gets it right and doesn't mix up. And as we turn this morning to Exodus 32, you, first of all, are probably wondering how I can connect a story like that to Exodus, but I can watch. So in Exodus 32, we're going to be looking at a time when God's people Israel did some mixing up. 
they got tripped up and mixed up and they made some mistakes. And there's something for us, church, as we look back to a story like this. Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf. And in Israel's failure, in their mix-up, we as the church today can learn lessons. And honestly, we need to take caution about what they themselves experienced. So with that, let's look at Exodus 32. Uh, I invite you to pull out the Bible ahead of you in the pew. If you don't have one, turn to Exodus 32 and, and let's read it together. And Scripture says this, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Now Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. 
They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Would you pray with me, church? Lord Jesus, as we turn our heart's attention to your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would challenge us. Lord, that we would sit in complete submission to your scriptures, to your word. And I pray, Lord, that it would have the authority to speak into our lives. That if there's any way, Lord, that we're not living consistently with it, that we would submit. That we would turn in confession and repentance and that we would be restored. Give us openness, give us humility, Lord, as we seek you in your word now. It's in this for your glory and for our good that all God's people pray. Amen. All right, so check it out. Exodus 32. How did we get here? Just back in Exodus 14, God parts the waters, right? Maybe you remember that story if you grew up in kids' church. God parts the Red Sea. His people walk on dry land. Exodus 15 His people start singing crazy songs about this magnificent God who has done the incredible and done the impossible. Then, in Exodus 16 and 17, God provides miraculously manna and quail every single day. Exodus 17, water from a rock. God is revealing himself to his people Israel in these crazy ways. And then in Exodus 20 through 23... God gives them the covenant code. The covenant code being, hey, Israel, here's what it looks like for you to be in relationship with me. Here's how you're supposed to live, and here's how you're supposed to worship in righteousness and holiness so that we can have relationship. And it's this beautiful law code that he gives them. But then in Exodus 24, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. And he calls Moses away from the people, and he tells Moses, hey, the things that I just gave you in these last few chapters now, I'm going to give you written down on tablets, written by my very hand, and you're going to take those, go down the mountain, put them in the ark, and literally my word, my covenant code, is going to dwell in the middle of the people. And now the people will know what it means to be my people. They will know how to please me. They will know how to obey me. And they will know how to be in relationship with me. So it's a good and beautiful thing. So God calls him up on Exodus 24. And then we come to find out that it's not a quick trip. And and the scriptures tell us that Moses is up there for 40 days. And now back down at the camp, at the beginning of, of Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. So what's happening is, you got to think about this. God's people have been called out. They've been introduced to God. And the only way that they've ever known how to relate to God has been through who? Moses. When God speaks to them, he speaks through Moses. When they bring anything to God, they go through Moses. And what they thought was going to be a quick trip turns out to take longer than they were anticipating, and time goes on, and they begin to panic a little bit because they don't know how to directly relate and mediate to God. In the New Testament, in Hebrews, the the writer tells us that we have now a new covenant. 
The old covenant through that was about mediation. The people, a mediator, and God. There was no direct relationship. And now in the new covenant, what we celebrate is that we have Jesus himself as the mediator. Literally, God is now the mediator between us. So now we can have direct relationship, direct access. Which is why if if any of you come from a background in Catholicism, this is a newer concept. The idea that now you can relate to God directly. You don't need a mediator. You don't need another. You have Christ, the mediator. And it's a beautiful, godly reality that we have. And yet, that's not what Israel had. They had Moses. But check it out. Now Moses is gone. Is Moses coming back? The people begin to panic. They begin to worry. And when they worry, they do what you and I do all the time. We go back to what we're familiar with, don't we? When you get stressed, when you get panicked, when you get anxious, you revert back to what you're familiar to. So for some of you, that might be addiction. For others, it's bad habits. But we revert back to what's familiar. And Israel is no different. They're questioning, how are we going to relate to God? Because we want to move forward into the promised land, but check it out, Moses isn't coming back, apparently. So now what do we do? How do we continue on? And so, just like us, they're more comfortable with the tangible and the seen than the unseen, and so they revert back to what they know. Now, most of us, when we look at the story, to be honest, we misunderstand what Israel's doing here, right? We look at them making the golden calf, and we just start thinking, like, how could they completely and so quickly walk away from God? This God who, in Exodus 14, parted the Red Sea, in Exodus 17, delivered manna and quail, Exodus 17, delivered water from the rock, and then we question, What's up with these people? Literally, it's been less than three months since the Red Sea, and they're already like, well, Moses is gone, so I'm going to do something new here. But that's actually not what Israel's doing when you look at the way they respond. You see, what Israel's doing is they're trying to figure out how to relate to God. They've only known Moses, and now he's gone, so we're going to go back to what we know. So it's not that they're walking away completely They were seeking his blessing and his presence. Look at verse 6. I'll prove it to you. Verse 6. So they make the golden calf, and then Aaron says, tomorrow we're going to have a festival. And verse 6 says this. So the next day the people rose early, and look at what they do. They sacrifice burnt offerings, and they present fellowship offerings. Very specific, kind of an odd thing. Look back at Exodus 20. Look back to the covenant code in Exodus 20, verse 24. When God tells them how to relate to him, what does he say? Exodus 20, verse 24. He tells them, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings. Give me your sheep and your goats and your cattle and then listen to why. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Then what does Israel do? They build an altar. They offer the sacrifices, the fellowship offerings. So you see what Israel's doing is they're not abandoning God completely. They're trying to figure out how to worship him now. The problem is with the best of intentions, they get mixed up. 
And the problem is, also, even with the best of intentions, it's still not okay to dishonor God. Because God, in that covenant code, he repeatedly says over and over and over again, don't make what? Don't make idols. Don't, you're going to be tempted to, don't do it. Don't make something and say it's me. Don't do it. And yet the people trying to obey, trying to worship, they blend, they mix what they're familiar with from the past with what God's invited them to in the present. Noble intentions, but they go horribly wrong. So church, this brings us to the main takeaway for you and I as we explore Exodus 32. And the main takeaway is this. The very thing that Israel struggled with back then is the same thing that you and I actually struggle with today. And I get it. I know most of you are not going home smelting down your jewelry to make gold calves. Number one, none of y'all got gold jewelry. I know it. And that cheap stuff don't melt down very well. Right? But you're not going home melting down idols. I get it. But at the heart of what's going on here is something deeper that you and I struggle with. And it's what we call syncretism. Right? Syncretism is a $10 word, but all it means is this. It's the mixing and the blending of different religions and culture. Syncretism is taking those different religious beliefs, those different cultural expressions, and then you bring them together into a new thing. And that's exactly what we see Israel doing in Exodus 32. And I would challenge us, church, with the thought of this, that you and I do the same thing today here in our culture too. It's just a little less obvious maybe than a gold statue in the middle of the room. Say so they, they made the tragic mistake because what they do, when they, got, when they were facing the unknown, they went back to the known. They were in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years they're in this culture and they don't know how to relate to Yahweh. They don't know what it looks like to relate to God. So when it comes time to figuring that out, they go back to what they've seen before. And you gotta ask yourselves the question, maybe you've never done it, but I would ask it, why did they make a gold calf? Out of everything they could have made, like I would have made like something super cool looking, right? If I'm going to do idolatry, let's go all the way. But they make a golden calf or a golden bull. Okay. Why? Because in Egypt, now in Egypt they have a pantheon. They got tons of gods roaming around this place. But there was an Egyptian bull cult in Egypt at this time. And what that was is they had, uh, in particular, a certain bull called Apis. Now, Apis was, if you look him up, he was a golden bull. And the Egyptians, they believed that Apis was special. He wasn't just an idol that was like a link to the god. But Apis was different as an idol. He was an idol that they believed housed the god themselves. So then you got to look at this and say, okay, Israel's struggle bussing. They're wondering, who's going to lead us into the promised land? Moses is gone. Now we've got this God, Yahweh, who's come to us. He says that he's going to lead us, and now we don't know what to do. So we go back and we borrow what we know. Let's make a golden calf like Apis. And that is going to be Yahweh. And when we make it, we'll have leadership, and it will take us where we need to go. So you see why they borrow what they do. Now, it's no excuse, but they're just borrowing what they know. And so church, you and I, again, we're not making golden bowls, but here's where now we interpret 
as Christians today. And we have to ask ourselves the question as we sit with God's word this morning, have I allowed my culture to syncretize with the gospel of Jesus? Have I allowed my culture's values, my culture's belief systems, my culture's ideas, my culture's practices, have they made their way into my understanding and my living out of the gospel? Now, it's different. There's, there's contextualization and then there's syncretism. Contextualization, the gospel gets transferred into cultures all over the world because the gospel is for all people in all places in all times. So the way that you and I gather and worship this morning, the way that we culturally express faithfulness to the gospel is very different than the way that our brothers and sisters in our mission field of Cambodia are worshiping today. It's real different. You're not going to find coffee and donuts outside the doors. You'll find some really weird food outside the doors. But it's contextualization. So the gospel always has to be contextualized because it needs to relate to the culture it's experienced or it's being expressed in, which is why today I, I preach in a t-shirt, jeans, and converse. Sixty years ago, on this very same stage, in this very same sanctuary, Dr. Coffin would not preach in sneakers, jeans, and shirt. And if he did, I guarantee you, church, the elders would catch him in the parking lot. They'd probably put a little hood over his head. He'd disappear into a van, and he would wear a suit next Sunday. But it's contextualization. It's just how the gospel relates to culture. If I were to walk up here in a, in a tux, I'd, be, I'd stick out. Right? So contextualization always happens. It's good to do that. Contextualization is about compatible aspects of our culture coming together with the gospel. Syncretism is that all those incompatible ideas, values, practices, and lifestyles that are incompatible with the gospel. And syncretism is the deadly and dangerous merging of those things together. And so church, for, for you and I, we've got to be We've got to be wise in how we relate to our culture today. We have to be faithful followers of Jesus who take Scripture in one hand and engage our world with the other. And so as we think about what it means for American syncretism, here's, I mean, that's going to play itself out in so many different ways. But one that I would argue for us this morning is this, that the American version of syncretism is a dangerous combination of ideologies that are now coming together, and we can see it manifesting in our culture today. On the one hand, we have hyper-individualism as Americans. I mean, we celebrate individualism, and we elevate and we empower the individual to the highest of heights, that you, as an individual, you and your thoughts, your opinions, your feelings have now been elevated to some dangerous heights where they matter most. And then on the other hand, you combine that with the removal of moral authority. Moral authority is no longer objective. Moral authority doesn't come from Scripture. It doesn't come from those sources. Moral authority is now being decentralized. It's being moved from the objective to the subjective. And then you take those two together because now you as the individual, you're given a vast amount by our culture. 
you're given a vast amount of moral authority. You now have the ability to decide for yourself what is good, what is right, and what is wrong. This is American syncretism. And when you combine those things together, what you get is unrestricted freedom of choice. Unrestricted freedom of choice. And that is celebrated by our culture. The highest ideal and empowerment for you as an individual is not to subject or not to submit to moral authority. It's now you have unrestricted freedom of choice for yourself. And church, that's the air we breathe in our culture. It's the celebrated aspect of American culture. And then we encountered that with the gospel. And I would argue, church, that American syncretism now is all about a gospel that merely empowers my choices rather than challenges my choices. See, because the gospel's job is to challenge me, to change me, to shape me, to become righteous like he is. But now American syncretism, our version, our blend of the gospel is the gospel's job is just to kind of empower my own choices. And where the gospel and I disagree, I supersede. And church, you and I see this playing out in our culture all over the place. And this is not just a, an American culture issue. Now it's a you and I issue. For those of us who profess to follow Jesus, we've got the difficult task of remaining faithful to Scripture, of choosing obedience over my freedom to choose. And when this plays out in our culture, it allows us to redefine obedience to the gospel. And there are some big ways that this is happening. For church, for you and I, I mean, we have to engage with these issues that are prevalent in our society. It's our generation of the church, these are the questions that we have to answer as those who seek to be faithful to Scripture. Because now that we're redefining obedience to the gospel, we've redefined what it means to obey God with our sexuality. We've redefined it. We've redefined it. We've opened the door so much so that we've turned the, what was at one point not a gospel-worthy lifestyle, and now we've opened the door to any lifestyle as acceptable to the gospel of Jesus. And once you open that door, you don't bring it back in. And so now we are wrestling with, as a culture, basically accepting any sexual lifestyle. And yet we are called to faithfulness, that we have to agree and say there are some things, there are some expressions of human sexuality that are not consistent with the gospel. And it's not up for you and I to get to choose which ones those are. God has made those clear to us. We've redefined the very nature of marriage. Marriage is now so convenient and so tradable, it's like Pokemon cards in the playground, right? It's like, I'll trade this one out, I'll trade that one out, because this one suits me, this one doesn't suit me. This one's run its course, and now I'm going to trade it out. So we've reduced marriage, where in Scripture it invites us into a covenant commitment before God himself, and now we've cheapened it, because marriage is all about my ability to choose what suits me, when it suits me. And so we trade it like cards in the playground. And even in the church, we've removed sex outside of marriage from being a non-negotiable to now, well, to be honest, it's kind of just another redefinable choice of obedience to the gospel. 
This is American syncretism at play in the gospel today. And when we've empowered ourselves as the individual, the individual gets to make the choices for themselves. And when you elevate the individual and you empower them with all sorts of moral authority, to be honest, church, and this one breaks my heart for the church today, can we imagine just a generation ago where the church was okay with the idea of empowering a person, any person's choice, to terminate an unborn child. A generation ago, it wasn't an issue. But church, you and I, the church today, we've got to come to terms with these things and say, what is the gospel and what is my culture being syncretized with the gospel? And these are difficult conversations for for us as faithful followers of Jesus to have today, which is why, honestly, we just don't have them. We stay quiet about them. And so those are the big headline ones. Those ones are easy. They're the elephants in the room that we know are there. And yet, church, I would argue that there's still further ones that we just don't address, that we don't talk about. And, and a big one that is quietly existing in the church is it's the gospel of comfort and convenience. Because when I have the freedom of choice, when I'm empowered with that freedom of choice, I will then approach the gospel and I will pick and choose those aspects of the gospel that I'm comfortable with, those aspects that I'm not comfortable with, and I will just make the decision to ignore those ones and be okay with the ones in front of me. And we call that a gospel lifestyle, but in reality, church, I think all we've got is that golden calf of our own making. And I would challenge each of us in this room to ask ourselves the question, when was the last time that the gospel made me uncomfortable? When was the last time the gospel actually, legitimately challenged you with something. Because when we sync up the freedom of choice, this unrestricted freedom of choice, with the gospel, really what we get is just a gospel of selective obedience. And that's why for so many of us, the gospel's easy. The gospel doesn't challenge me. Ironically, the gospel agrees with me. And it's super convenient. But because we've brought this idea of unrestricted freedom of choice, we've merged it with the gospel, and now you and I are totally okay with a relationship with Jesus that is based on my comfort and my convenience. And so you and I can look at Exodus 32, and we can knock on Israel for making a golden bowl. But church, isn't it just as deadly? Isn't it just as dangerous to have a church that redefines obedience? We'll masquerade it as all sorts of other things, but you and I wrestle with, am I going to obey the gospel? Or am I going to redefine it on my terms? And so my prayer and my hope this morning, church, is that you and I would have that conversation with God. And there's a response that I think we're invited into. And this is one that you and Jesus can have. Lord, how do I respond to this? My prayer is that we would respond in humility. Look at verses 22 through 24. At the end of our passage. In the meantime, Israel, while they're down there, before we go to 24, look at the end of verse 6. Look at their response. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. 
They're celebrating. And meanwhile, th- because all along they've sought to legitimize that which is incompatible with the gospel. They, they're, they're seeking to legitimize it. They built an altar. They offered the right offerings and, and sacrifices on it. And now they celebrate because in their mind, we did it. And all the while, look at God's response to Moses on the mountain. Hey, Moses, you need to go down. Why? My people have corrupted themselves. Because you and I, church, with gospels of comfort and gospels of unrestricted freedom of choice, you can convince yourself. It's super easy to do, actually. But God is not fooled by the ways that we seek to legitimize what is incompatible. And so I pray that we would respond in this way. Look at verses 22 through 24. So Moses comes down, he calls Aaron out. He's like, dude, what did these people do to you? Gotta love Aaron. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. Check it out. You know how prone these people are to evil. Nice, there's the bus. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire. And out came this golden calf. There I was, Moses. I kid you not. Right? It's, it's honestly the response that you would expect of a child. Not, the, not who is soon to become the chief priest of Israel. You would expect it from, your, from a child. I know because I have children. Right? When, t- when Kennedy was in the NICU, our friends, the Metcalfs, blessed us by watching the kids so we could go visit her in the NICU. Right? Carson and Camden are five and four at the time. We drop them off at the Metcalfs, and then we come back and we pick them up. And parents, you know this. You can kind of walk into a room, and you can, you can smell chaos. Like, it's, it's real. It's tangible, right? And we walk in, and I'm just like, it's here. And I'm like, Rachel, how were the boys? And Rachel loves Jesus, but Rachel's a terrible liar. And she's like, oh, they, were, they were so good. They were so good. And I'm like, I got you, I got you. And it's one of those things, parents, where you look at your kids and you're like, just wait until there's no witnesses. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Blessings. So we get in the car and, man, gloves come off. And Taylor and I, I've talked about this before, man, we were just tag teaming this thing. We were like, what, are you kidding me? Like, Miss Rachel has brand new newborn twins and she's watching you and you act like crazy people. And Carson just starts breaking down, crying. You know, I kind of feel guilty for making a five-year-old cry. He starts breaking down in the back seat. And then I lost my, my, my grace. I, I just don't know. My, my head was filled with evil, evil. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's all the TV. <laughs> like like it's, it's PJ Masks' fault that you acted like a savage, right? Like you're going to blame this on Owlette? And yet that's what he does. And so that's the same thing. I mean, I, that's just, that backseat conversation is Exodus 32, 22 to 24. Aaron's just like, man, you know how evil these people are, Moses? They, they threw their gold at me and I threw it in the fire and bah, out it came. So church, my hope and my prayer for you and I is that we would not respond like Aaron. But that in a posture of humility, we would come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've, I've, I've gone wrong. I've allowed my culture to shape the gospel for me. And then I would enter into a piece of confession and say, Lord, I confess it. I own this. It's not my culture's fault. 
It's not the church's fault. It's with me. And that with that confession, church, that we'd be moved to repentance and say, Lord, I want better. I want the gospel. I want a gospel that calls me to radical obedience, that calls me to sacrifice my choice, that I might be changed and shaped for righteousness' sake. And church, my prayer is that you would hunger for that this week too. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And and we're going to go into a time of prayer. Would you join me?